Hello and welcome to Diversifying Reading with Shireen Wilkinson, a series of podcasts brought to you by Oxford University Press in association with Lit in Colour. Okay, so welcome to Diversifying Reading and I'm absolutely delighted to have the amazing Darren Chetty joining us today. Now, Darren is a lecturer at the UCL and he's doing his PhD at the Institute of Education and he taught in London primary schools for 20 years. Um, Darren's research focuses on philosophy for children, multiculturalism and racism. He's written a wide range of uh, academic papers and research and he co-edited the critical philosophy of race and education he's also author of you can't say that stories have to be about white people an essay in the good immigrant so absolutely delighted to have you here darren you've got so much experience i think let's make a start and just talk about what's your journey in terms of education for the past 20 plus years Hmm. So, yeah, I was a primary school teacher for 20 years. Uh, Most of that time was teaching in East London. I've been teaching also in higher education for the past eight years, firstly at the Institute of Education and now at UCL. So, yeah, I guess it's a range from teaching, you know, year one to undergrads. uh, But there's a there's a continuity to it at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And what made you sort of go into it? What made you think, actually, I'm going to do a degree and become a primary school teacher? What was your motivation? Um, I think, firstly, a friend's mother was a primary school teacher and I was sort of, you know, thinking about what I wanted to do. And I went into class and helped out and just really enjoyed it and thought I could, you know, I could imagine myself doing this. So then, uh, you know, enrolled for university and, and, and did an education degree. It was education has always interested me as as philosophy. And I guess the relationship between the two has always been interesting. A sort of, you know, what what do we want from life? What 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 should life be about and how do we educate? And, and education was a way of, of trying to combine those interests. That's so interesting, Darren, because it just there highlights the importance of role models and you speaking there about, you know, somebody within the family, a family friend who was that role model for you. So thank you for sharing that. So I wanted to ask a little bit more about the Lit in Colour and your involvement in the publication and research. So how, how did that come about and what kinds of things were you involved in? So I'm on the advisory board for Lit in Colour. So I'm not actually involved in the research itself, but more in, in, in thinking through some of the questions of the research and thinking about how best to disseminate it, to work with other organisations. Uh, I think I was invited partly, as you mentioned, the, the Good Immigrant chapter, which I think had a, a bit of an effect in, in children's publishing, and also my involvement in the Reflecting Realities uh, research at the Centre for Literacy and Primary Education. Um, on the advisory board of that. Uh, so, yeah, I think those things combined uh, have, have sort of been the reason why I'm, I'm part of it. So the Lit in Colour, if we look at that particular publication, talked quite a bit about the fact that pupils are not studying texts by black and Asian authors. What were your thoughts around that? I guess my thoughts were that I wasn't surprised by the findings. It's always, <laughs> good, it's always good to have the research so that people can't just say, well, that's just your opinion. But but it seemed to back up what, what a lot of us have, have, have noticed anecdotally. And I think that some of the challenges when I, when I speak with teachers about this, part of those as sort of economic things of, you know, which books are in the cupboard. We, we use the same books year in, year out because we haven't got a budget. 
But there are also questions that are interesting about, well, if we were to introduce this book, do we feel confident that we've got the background knowledge and the pedagogy to deal with uh, questions that for a long time just haven't been part of our teaching practice, haven't been part of the curriculum. So I think that's where the really interesting work lies, that people are realising now that there have been historic exclusions going on in literature and, and in the curriculum more generally, and to address those exclusions will probably involve some investment in teacher education and thinking through how and what we teach. Absolutely. I think definitely, because I've also been in education for 20 plus years mm. and there seems to be a sort of sea change, actually. People are now focusing on it and it's something I've been thinking about for two decades, but it's made a difference. So for, for people just, you know, for our listeners, why do you think it's important to have a wide range of text by different authors and texts that feature different children. Why? Why? Why is it important? It's important for a number of reasons, and, and, and in a sense, that our question is why is it important to stop uh, the exclusion? But Humphrey Carpenter, in, in a book called Secret Gardens, uh, he he writes that all children's books are about ideals. Adult mm-hmm. fiction sets out to portray and explain the world as it really is, and books for children presented as it should be. And I think if if we take that seriously, and I think a lot of people do, I I was lucky enough to interview the Little Rebels shortlisties recently, and all of them were saying that they think about the world as it should be and offering hope. Then why is it that so many of these tales seem to have just erased people of Mm. colour from from the landscape? And what does that mean? And I think when we we realise that that's quite a concerning thought about our sort of collective imagination that that's happened for so long. It's what uh, Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, uh, academic in, in the States, calls the unimagination gap. Mm. Then we need to start addressing that and thinking about the, those long historical exclusions, the reasons for them, the impact of them, and what we might do to address those. Mm. I think that's something that's fundamental. And the word you've used there, which I've really picked up on, is the word exclusion. You know, we can have this, but but why is it being excluded? It's a really interesting question, which no doubt we will explore as we go through the podcast. Let's just do something a little bit lighter now. And let's think back to literature when you were at school. What was it like? Let's just reflect back. I mean, I know what it was like for me, but what was it like for you? Uh, lighter is an interesting turn of phrase there. So literature, <laughs> when I was at school, was it was very white. You know, I really enjoyed stories. Mm. I really enjoyed talking about books. But I'm of that generation uh, that grew up, you know, learning to read through Peter and Jane. Yes. Uh, that sort of archetypal, seemingly British middle class family. And to be honest, Peter and Jane didn't stick out as unusual anachronisms. They kind of set up what was to come through, through certainly through primary school reading. Uh, Enid Blyton was was an ever-present, you know, author. Roald Dahl books were very popular. Roald Dahl was still writing at this point. So literature was enjoyable, but I was, you know, I had some awareness of how, you know, folks like me didn't sort of appear in books. Yeah, absolutely. And that is actually my experience as well. And, Mm. you know, we can have text, but we can have a range variety of texts that reflect different children and different authors. So let's think about how we can support parents. It's one of those things. I work in schools, you know, and lots of schools are really taking on uh, the challenge of making sure that their curriculum is far more diverse. But we also need to support parents within that. So 
should parents expect their children to read the same books that they read as children? So I think this is a really interesting question. And, and, and even though it's not one that's sort of out there all the time, I think it's often in the background of a lot of the conversations around children's literature. I think children's books is this interesting site where family and education and art and commerce, uh, even the nation and childhood intersect. And it's part of the reason why it, 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 it's become quite a, a, a battlefield in, in some places. What's going on in the United States right now and the attempt to sort of ban books because parents feel uncomfortable with them is, is, is sort of and there's every chance that that, that sort of uh, move might might take place here in, in the near future. I think for parents, I think next time you're in a bookshop, if you go to the, the children's section and you, you, you look at the, the classics table that a lot of bookshops have, <laughs> It can be worth sort of asking yourself, uh, are these books timeless classics, as they're, they're usually described, or are they stories rooted in the prevailing attitudes of a, a bygone era? And I think they may well be both, and that's what's complicated mm. about this. Uh, I think that's why children's literature should be taken seriously, because it's not about saying, well, we're going to throw out every story that has you know, so-called problematic values. But it does mean that we might need to to think as teachers and even as parents about how we talk about these these things. And if we understand that books are cultural products, then, then what's in a book isn't infallible. You know, authors make mistakes, authors have blind spots, and authors might have really horrible attitudes. Uh, and I think if we can recognise that, and I think I might work with children, I think children can understand that, that they've got this wrong or this is a bit nasty. Absolutely. And yet, the story is quite memorable and I like it. And it's that kind of relationship to art that I think we should be cultivating, which is a far more critical one than just saying these stories good, these stories bad, that, that mm. we can actually be you know, thoughtful, active readers of literature. Um, I think that's what, what, I, what I'd hope for. Absolutely. I absolutely love that response because we're not throwing everything out. We're just looking at it critically. You know, it's not about getting rid of the classics or whatever. And I, I, I really love that response because it's just looking at it in our time now and thinking about the books that we're reading and the messages that they're giving to our pupils. But the, the final thing in this, I don't want this to be understood as an old versus new question. Because I think one of the effects of the historical exclusion of black writing in particular and non-white, non-European writing more generally is that generations have been schooled to believe there aren't black and non-European literary traditions that are worthy of studying. So educating people about that falsehood, looking back at black writing and at Asian writing is also important because it's something that young people are entitled to know about. Mm, fascinating. I think that just really encapsulates the key importance there of having a range of literature. It kind of follows nicely onto the next question that I've got, because some of the, the texts that, that children are reading are actually quite challenging. I know I've sort of looked at some, some texts where, you know, we might be a bit uncomfortable about some of the key messages. So should children's books entertain comfort or challenge young readers it's a really interesting thing to think about 
Yeah, I think my short answer to that is is yes. Uh, that the books should actually <laughs> do all three of those uh, to different degrees and at different times, and that that's what we expect from literature. Is what we expect from art. You know, we, we sometimes take consolation. We sometimes look for sort of validation. It helps us locate ourselves in the world, but at other times it helps us encounter things that we won't in our everyday lives, and that's a real powerful element of, of art as well and of literature. And I think it's summed up in in. Rudin Sims Bishop essay, which I think has had a huge impact on us thinking about diversity in children's literature. And that's uh, Mirrors, Windows and Sliding Glass Doors. And she talks about how literature can be a mirror to ourselves and who we are. It can also be a window onto other worlds that we would never encounter in our lives. But that this sliding glass door allows this sort of combination of the two where we get this reflection of ourselves, but also this chance to open that door and move into something else. And I think it's a wonderful metaphor. It's often used without sort of crediting Dr. Bishop. It also inspired the Reflecting Realities, the name of Reflecting Realities report. And she herself was building on Emily Stiles' work a little bit earlier, uh, looking at the curriculum as a window and mirror. So I think these notions are important to anyone who cares about children's books and anyone who cares about education. Darren, that is absolutely fascinating. I hadn't even really thought of it that way, that notion of the mirror, the window, the sliding glass door. Amazing. I'll be really thinking about that um, as I go through and I'm in school as well. Thank you for sharing that with me. So thinking about your experience then, I mean, you've been a reviewer on the Letterbox Library, an education consultant for Breaking Convention. You were talking there about reflecting realities and working on that with the CLPE. And, and obviously you're on the advisory board for Lit in Colour. I've been thinking about this because you know, I've been in education for 20 years plus. Diversity seems to be a new thing. So I suppose my question for you is, is diversity a new topic for children's books? And, and why are we hearing so much about it these days? Yeah, well, I think the answer to this partly rests on what we mean by diversity. So you can go right back to Robinson Crusoe by Daniel Defoe, 1719, which many people say was the first novel in the English language. And in one sense, in that book, you have diversity. And when I was at the Hay Festival in 2019, I spent a lot of time going to all the secondhand bookshops that Hay's famous for and looking for books with black and brown racially minoritized characters, because it's kind of a hobby of mine now to collect them. <laughs> Oh, there can be lots of hobbies. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, yeah. It, it can be an expensive hobby. But Hay's an absolute treasure trove for for the, for books with with African uh, African Caribbean Asian characters. The problem is that most of these books were about intrepid explorers that are travelling off to the colonies, mm. and that the people they encounter there are depicted as uncivilized beings as savages to a greater or lesser degree. So seemingly you've got diversity, but what you've actually got is like really offensive portrayals mm. of people of color. And I think if we sort of zoom out, the, the depiction of, of racially minoritized people in British children's literature kind of has these three historical stages. The first one is like the Robinson Crusoe. It's people presented as subhumans and primitives or as these counterpoints to the white protagonists. And then the second one 
people of color are sort of marginal characters or they're not really there in in, in a true sense. They're there in allegorical form or they're written out of the narrative. Mm. And it's the third stage that I think we're into now where racially minoritized people are presented as fully human characters with agency. Uh, and it seems like it is laughable that, you know, it's, it's taken like so long to get to that stage. And it has been black and Asian writers who have been, you know, at the forefront of doing that. But there's never been enough of them who are being published for that to happen, you know, as quickly as we'd like. You know, I'm almost in silence because that resonated with me. I did an English lit degree and we looked at American literature and that's all we saw. And I I remember I used to keep quiet in the class because black people, Asian people always, they were, you know, the foreign ones or they were depicted as the savages. And I just... You know, that so resonated with me, Darren. And I think you're so right. We've now moved to that time where black and brown um, children can be the main protagonists. I understand then that you co-host and write with Karen Sands O'Connor, okay? And you write this regular column called Books for Keeps. And it's entitled Beyond the Secret Garden. <laughs> um, fascinating title. Why did you choose it? So The Secret Garden was this story that I read, you know, as a child and had I can remember having mixed feelings about that it was, you know, I loved all the scenes in the garden and, and the growth and the sort of magic of the tale. But I was also struck by the first chapter, which is set in India, where by the end of chapter one, all the Indian people have died. Um, And where India is basically set up as this place that's unhealthy. The reason why Mary Lennox, the 10-year-old girl, is said to be sickly is because she's in India and, you know, what can grow there is that sort of sense. Those Indian characters, because she moves to Britain, they're, they're just forgotten. They were just background to set up the main story. And also her sort of attitude to them, she, she describes them as blacks and says they're not people, they're servants who must salam to you. And, and the sort of defense of that is that, well, actually, this is to show her moral growth. She starts as this horrible little brat and she ends as this very thoughtful character. Mm. But the way that those Indian characters are there purely to, to show her moral growth and not characters in themselves, you know, even, you know, nine-year-old Darren thought this was a bit weird. And, and I guess as I've got older and read some of the scholarship around it, I've, I've just, yeah, I've been even more convinced of that. Mm. But also... This idea that the secret garden, as, as Humphrey Carpenter writes, is, is a good metaphor for children's literature more broadly. So, you know, that, that children's literature and children's publishing is, is this place of wonder, of nurture and cultivation. We have this word cultivation for gardening, but also for the way we sort of educate children. Uh, But at the same time, this secret garden is a walled enclosure and it excludes many and it treats them as background characters. So it was a case of us saying, well, can can we get more people into this this wonderful garden or do we even need an enclosed garden? Are the walls in this in this metaphor, at least, are the walls part of the problem of of how children's literature has been uh, written about and and pursued? Interesting. I find that fascinating because I, as a child, read The Secret Garden. And so I understand what you're talking about. And it's that, that it's that word beyond, isn't it? Going beyond that mm-hmm. secret garden. And I love the way that you use metaphors to almost, you know, give that description. 
So tell me a bit about the kinds of things that you write about in Beyond the Secret Garden. What sorts of literature, what sort of things, if someone was to have a look at it and wanting to read it, what, what sorts of things do you write? So, I mean, we, we tend to try and look at it thematically. Karen is, is really really amazing on knowing the history of children's literature. So she'll offer a historical view of, for instance, the place of gardens in, in children's literature. We recently did a piece looking at LGBT uh, people of colour, uh, which you know hasn't been done that much and, and try to track that and, and, and how that's you know changed over time. Uh, and what we try and do also is is really there's critical engagement with books and some books, you know, we, we probably are less keen on than others, but in all cases, it's about taking, taking children's literature seriously at a time when it often doesn't get reviewed in the broadsheet papers. It's really been sort of marginalized in, in such a way, even though it's a big part of, of publishing revenue. There's this idea that we don't need to think about it seriously. So hopefully, you know, people reading it would would get a thoughtful engagement with some books and an, uh, uh, help to find more books that they might be interested in reading. Mm, I definitely enjoyed reading some of your posts around the Beyond the Secret Garden. I'm always learning so much from you. Thank you for that, Darren. Let's do something a bit lighter. <laughs> um, something, yeah, try. Okay, so <laughs> tell me, um, Darren, tell me, what's your favourite poem? Let's, 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 let's do this. Oh, so that's a good question. I mean, <laughs> okay, I'll, so I'll bracket off sort of rap and hip hop, which is which is my first love, which is what got me into to writing and and probably kept me in education at a time when I was you know not keen on it. So favorite poem, I'm going to go with uh, one by Jackie Kay, which is in uh, a collection called Two's Company, and it's called Two Carla Johnsons. Nice. And I've used it in in with year five, year six and asked children to write poems, you know, in response. And they've written some of the most amazing poetry because it's about this idea of there being more than one identity that we have and that we can explore all of them. Yeah, it's, it's just a lovely poem. Oh, lovely. You know, I heard you say about your favourite poem, but then I also heard something about rap and hip hop. <laughs> now, yeah. I love a bit of rap and hip hop. So you've got to tell me a bit more about that, Darren, please. <laughs> so you said you said something about it saved you or something? I, I, <laughs> think, so. I think I was lucky enough to sort of be, you know, involved. I don't want to overstate my, my, my importance, but involved in, in hip hop at a time when you know, a lot of the big rap acts were really talking about education as an important mm. thing, but were also in, in their interviews, often sort of ending the interview with books they'd recommend. You know, it's, it's not yes. something that happens right now so much in hip hop, but mm. it certainly did then. So I can remember, I think at age 15, 16, reading the autobiography of Malcolm X and just you know having my mind blown and trying to have conversations with teachers about this book. And then they, some of them hadn't even heard of Malcolm X, much less been aware of, of the ideas within it. So I think that was the start, really, of, of me mm. constructing an alternative curriculum for myself, which when I talk to black and brown writers, we often seem to share this experience of, yeah, we did that stuff at school, and then we had to do this supplementary stuff about the stuff we really cared about. About 10 years ago, I set up a, a, a series of, of seminars for teachers and hip-hop artists, which we call mm. Hip Hop Ed, sort of based on what we're starting in, in the US. And, and one of the star sort of members of, of that Hip Hop Ed 
group was Jeffrey Boacher, who just this year released A Musical Truth, which is a children's book, which is Black British history from 48 onwards and which is set around 28 songs. So I think that the power of music and particularly black yes. music and its relationship to black history, you know, Lovely. Jeffrey explores that really well in that book. I'd, I'd recommend that to anyone. Yeah, we can teach things in different ways as well. So, Darren, you've been wonderful. I think I've just got one last question for you. And that's around, so like you, you were East London. I've sort of been teaching and and around in South London. What would you say to those schools who are not in very diverse areas, don't necessarily have very challenging pupils? What would be your kind of take on that what would how would you encourage schools to really embrace diversity yeah i think this is an important question because i think often our our calls for diversity have sort of centered around how the, the needs of black children the needs of children of color and that is clearly important that, that the harms that can be done from from being completely excluded from from literature but I think there's an adverse effect on all children that we need to recognize. So if, if you're a white child in this country and you're educated to an understanding that people of color don't belong in stories, that people of color don't write any stories worth reading and studying, then you're actually being miseducated. You're being let down by publishing. You're being let down by the education system. And it's likely to have an effect on how you come to view uh, your place in the world as a white person and, and how you come to view people of colour. So it, what implicitly is being communicated is that white people are the only people worth studying, which is to, to go back to a hierarchy that was probably there when these exclusions first took place. And I think that's really interesting because it means that not only was I being educated and thinking, well, there's not many people like me in this curriculum, but my cl- white classmates we're probably being educated to a belief that this is how the world is and this is how the world should be. So that idea of imagining people of colour out of existence is, is there. And, and it means that, you know, what, what we sometimes call the social imagination is, is harmed, that our ability to imagine creatively the, a future world is, is severely limited by these absences. And, and it's important, therefore, for all our children and for all our teachers to be engaging with literature in the broadest and richest sense. Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm so with you on that one. And you just, you articulated that beautifully. I ran a network this week with some teachers and we were talking about having diverse texts and, and, and it's in schools that aren't particularly diverse. And, and one teacher said they were looking at fairy tales and they were looking at alternatives to fairy tales where they have black and brown characters. And one of the little kids, age six, put their hands up and said, fairy tales only have people with blonde hair and blue eyes. Why are we studying this? And so what you've just said is still needed that they can see that fairy tales can be a range of people. Thank you for that, Darren. So I've really enjoyed speaking to Darren Chetty, talking about racism, talking about why it's important to have diverse range of texts. And I'm looking forward to working with you again, Darren, in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this diversifying reading podcast from Oxford Education in association with Lit in Colour. Visit www.oup.com education podcasts 
for links to relevant resources and to discover more episodes.